Our text this morning comes from, comes from Psalm 61. Psalm 61, please open your Bibles there. That's where we will be this morning. Psalm 61. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray again. Our Father, we are awed and we marvel that we can call you the God of the universe, our Father. And we thank you that you gave up your only Son to save us. We thank you that you have given Holy Spirit to be with us forever. And we thank you, Father, that you have revealed your mind to us in your word. And we pray now, Father, that through your word preached, we would be built up in our most holy faith, that the unrepentant would be given grace to repent, and that with the eye of faith we would see Jesus, the King of this cosmos. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a regular reader of the Psalms, and if you're not, you should be, you might think that Psalm 61 sounds a lot like many of the other Psalms that David wrote. David feels very, very far away from God. He's oppressed by his enemies, and he prays for God to be faithful and to deliver him from his troubles. Now, many psalms have the exact same themes. So what is it that is distinctive about this particular psalm, Psalm 61? As I was preparing this sermon, I read a handful of commentators And it was interesting, I found that many of them struggled to find something distinctive about the psalm as well. But the Lord was gracious, and he gave me an aha moment that helped me to see the structure of this psalm. There is, in this psalm, a very clear progression that happens through it. That's why I've titled this sermon, our sermon this morning, From World's End to enthroned from world's end to enthroned david is at the ends of the earth when he writes this psalm and he expresses his hope that god will lift him up onto a high rock away from his enemies but mere deliverance from enemies as you can see mere deliverance from enemies is not enough for david he goes further and he says I want to dwell in God's tent. 
But living in God's tent isn't enough for him either. He goes even further and he says that he will be enthroned in God's very presence because of God's covenant faithfulness. It's this progression that you see from the end of the world to enthroned in the presence of God in this psalm. It's this progression that caused Spurgeon to say of this psalm, thus he who began at the foot of the rock half drowned and almost dead is here led to the summit and sings as a priest abiding in the tabernacle. He sings as a king ruling with God forever and a prophet foretelling good things to come. God's anointed goes from fainting at the end of the world to living forever as king before God. In many of David's psalms, we have clues about the historical situation which led David to write the psalm. But this psalm, we don't have any clues as to what the situation was. This psalm could have been written in any one of a number of different circumstances of David's life. It could be that he wrote this psalm while he was on the run from Saul. David you remember, had been anointed as king by Samuel, but David had to run into the wilderness after his anointing. He had to hide from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. Saul was jealous of him. And so he had to run off into hiding. So this psalm could easily fit into the second half of 1 Samuel. But the psalm could also fit into the second half of 2 Samuel. After David sinned with Bathsheba, Absalom, his own son, made a beeline for the throne and he sought to kill David and to take the throne and David had to go on the run again he had to go away from his own throne he had to go away from the tent of God in Jerusalem and so he could have prayed this psalm during that time there could be another situation in David's life that we don't know about that led him to write this psalm but the fact that we don't know the particular historical situation illustrates one of the great wonders of God's word God has so written his word, he has so designed his word, that the same psalm, the same words can apply in multiple different life situations. The words of the same psalm hit home to Christians who feel swallowed up by their own sin, and it also hits home to Christians enduring unbearable loneliness. The same words speak deeply to the Christian who is standing at the crossroads, perhaps, of a major life decision, and also to the Christian wondering what it was that they did to cause their children to walk away from God. That's a great glory of God's word. The same words apply in multiple situations. And this psalm is no exception. There's just three things I want us to see out of this text this morning, real easy. The rock, the tent and the throne the rock the tent and the throne first the rock we see this in verses one through three and this psalm is a prayer to god but notice in verse one that david dispenses with the pleasantries and gets right to the point Uh, he doesn't come as we do and say our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name he's so bold he he actually starts out commanding god to listen to him he starts out his prayer hear my god hear my cry O god listen to my prayer david had that kind of boldness in his approach to god many of his psalms start this abruptly he often runs to his god perhaps even with tears streaming down his face yelling 
help me. It's almost as if he had kind of an inkling of what we have in Christ when we can approach the throne of grace boldly. I'm particularly encouraged, interestingly, by how the poetry of verse 1 works. Very often in the Psalms and in other poetry of the Old Testament, the writer will arrange his poem in groups of two lines. And in these groups of two lines, the second line will restate and help explain the first line. Now, this happens here in verse 1, and I want you to notice how knowing an academic point like Hebrew poetry actually can give you encouragement in your prayer life. The structure of Hebrew poetry applies to your life. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Do you see? If the second line is a restatement of the first line, then what has David said? David has said that crying out to God and praying can be the exact same thing. Have you ever been so far at the end of your rope that you've just cried out to God and in your crying there's not really any words that you can find to express the exasperation that is in your heart? Did you know that even when you cry out to God and you can't find the words to express what you really feel, what you really want to say, that God hears such crying as prayer and he accepts it and he knows the words that you can't actually speak. That's what the great letter to the Romans in chapter 8 says, isn't it? Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then he goes on in verse 26 and says, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us, those of us who have groanings too deep for words. What a wonderful reassurance that when I'm at the end of my rope and can only cry and groan before God, he understands exactly what I'm trying to say in my heart because the Holy Spirit is interceding for me before the throne. We see in verse 2 why David is crying out in his prayer like this. He says in verse 2, he's at the end of the earth and he's fainting. Now it could be that David says he's at the end of the earth, that when he says that, that he truly is at the very ends of the land that had been given to Israel. But David could just as easily be speaking metaphorically like we often do. In the moments when we cry out to God, doesn't it not feel like we are at the very end of the world, separated from everything good? And in such times, don't we feel that we have a heart that is on the verge of breaking? Of course, we all know what that feels like. All Christians know this feeling. It doesn't mean that you are unsaved when you go through this experience. It's part of normal Christian experience to have times when, for whatever reason, we feel like we're about to be swallowed up by darkness and we feel that we're at the very ends of the world. That is normal Christian experience. 
So David calls out to God in this state, and he begs God. Second half of verse 2, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Well, why is it that David would want to go to a high rock? The reason's in verse 3. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. We see in the last line here of verse 3 what has prompted this whole crying out episode. Some sort of enemy is oppressing David, and his only deliverance will be if God takes him out of the far-off wilderness and places him on top of a high rock away from the reaches of the enemy. But notice who he identifies as the rock. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge. God himself is the rock that is higher than David. God himself is the refuge and the strong tower. When we're at the end of our rope crying out to God, we need God more than we need anything else. Whoever the enemy is, whether it's a person doing us wrong or whether a Satan is assaulting us with temptation or he's trying to remember, put in our minds and accuse us of sin that's been long forgiven in our past, it is God that we need us to lift up onto himself. We need to be lifted up onto that rock that is higher than I. That's the rock. Second, the tent. That's verses 4 and 5, the tent. It's a wonderful blessing to have refuge in God, our rock. But we see here, in verse, beginning in verse 4, that David wants even more of God. He doesn't want to be merely protected from the enemy. David goes further and says, verse 4, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. What is this tent that David speaks of here? David is speaking of the tabernacle. Remember, during David's life, Israel's temple is not yet built. God's covenant presence dwells in the tabernacle, the tent that was made by Israel under Moses in the wilderness. And David says here he doesn't want to be merely protected by God. David wants to live where God lives. David often expresses a desire to live where God lives in the Psalms. I absolutely love Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David longed to live in God's house and to look upon God and to inquire or to meditate upon God. He puts the same truth another way in the second half of verse 4. He says, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. This phrase, the shelter of your wings, or under the shelter of your wings, it pictures a mother bird protecting her young. Now some have said that this is a reference to the cherubim, right? The cherubim that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant that is in the tabernacle with the wings that overshadowed the mercy seat. It could also be a reference to David simply living in the covenant presence of God. This picture of being sheltered under God's wings is used vividly in the book of Ruth, incidentally. When Ruth clung to Naomi after uh, she left her home country of Moab to go to Naomi's home in Israel, Boaz praised her for her loyalty. 
And he praised Ruth by saying in Ruth 2 verses 11 and 12, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then, in the next chapter in Ruth, verse 9, Ruth says to Boaz when she lays down at his feet, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The outstretched wings of God speak to God's covenant, redeeming presence. To be under God's wings is to be redeemed and living under God's wonderful covenant. What is the ground for David's request to live in God's house? Verse 5, it is that David has been bound to God by a covenant. David had made vows to God Because he was in covenant with God, God had given David a heritage, it says. The land of Israel itself is God's heritage. The Old Testament speaks of Israel's land as Israel's heritage. If you like, God's house stood on God's land, just like our houses stand on our land, right? I got my land, I got my house, and it's mine, okay? It's the same thing here. God made a covenant with Israel to bring him onto his land. And David expresses that he wants to dwell on that land in God's house. When we're at the end of the earth crying out to God, don't we just wish that in some sense we could just be lifted up out of the world and placed in another world with a God who loves us? I confess, in my experience... When I'm at the end of my rope, I really wish that God would just come get me and take me to his house. Get me out of here. Don't want to be here anymore. That's one of the reasons why it's so good, incidentally. That's one of the reasons why it's so good for us to go to worship both publicly and privately when we're at the end of the earth. When you're at the end of the earth, don't stay away from God's or or don't stay away from God's people. Come to God's people. The church on earth worshiping is a picture of the heavenly reality to come where we will be gazing upon God and meditating upon him in his own house. Those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus are in covenant with God and that means that we have every right by God's own decree to live in God's house and to take refuge under the shelter of his wings. In the gospel, we not only receive God as a rock to protect us from the enemy, but we also receive God as the owner of the most glorious house that there ever will be, and it is ours. But there's even more in this psalm. Verses 6 through 8, the throne. The throne. It's not enough for David to be protected. It's not enough for David to dwell in God's house. David has the audacity to pray that he would be enthroned as king in God's house forever. Verses 6 and 7, Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. David's prayer takes him 
from the very ends of the earth into the very throne room of God. And David, as God's anointed, expects to reign as king in God's covenant presence. Notice the last line of verse 7. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. When you see those two words together in the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness, those words clue you in that God's covenant is in view. David expresses his desire to reign as king before God while he is also in covenant with God. And we know from the story of David that both in the matters of Saul and Absalom, David was restored to his throne. God had promised it in a covenant, 2 Samuel 7. God in his steadfast love and faithfulness, even when David was wrongly accused and even when David was rightly accused and sinned grievously, God in his steadfast love and faithfulness still conquered David's enemies, brought him back into God's house so he could go to the temple and put him on the throne in Jerusalem. But look again very closely at the second line of verse 6 and the first line of verse 7. What does it say? May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. David ultimately died. And he knew when he wrote this psalm that he would not live forever. So he's not talking about himself. Who is he talking about? David is talking about a king who will come after him, who will live forever, and who will reign before God world without end. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the one descended from David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. I'm captivated by the fact that the progression of this psalm is also the pattern and progression of our Lord's whole life. He comes into the world as a baby, and he's born as a king. And what must happen immediately after he's born? He has to go on the run out of his homeland, and he has to go out into the wilderness in Egypt because his enemies are after him. There's a usurper king, Herod, who wants to kill him. So he has to go on the run at the end of the world. He has to leave the land of promise. When he comes back to his homeland, he goes and he lives in Galilee. That's backwater country. That's away from the temple in Jerusalem. Can anything good come out of Galilee? He's away from God's tent. Just away from the temple. And he spends much of his ministry away from the temple. He grows up at the ends of the earth. And and then at his baptism, he's anointed as king by the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? He immediately goes where? Into the wilderness to be tempted by the greatest enemy, Satan. He spends much of his ministry in Galilee. And when he does venture into Jerusalem during those three years, he's hiding from those seeking to kill him because his time has not yet fully come. The whole thing comes to a crescendo. When he comes into Jerusalem... 
As we read in our passage in Matthew this morning, when he comes into Jerusalem and everybody is saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes the king of Israel. And what happens? He's finally captured by his enemies. He's put through a sham trial and then he's murdered on a cross. Jesus then goes to that cross which is the very, very, very end of the earth. He goes to the cross, the end of the earth, that he might atone for our sins. You can almost hear him in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross praying, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. But what is it that happens after Jesus' sacrificial death for us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is what? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus goes from the end of the world to enthroned in the very presence of of God. Jesus, after he dies for us, resurrects. He ascends into heaven for us, into the very house of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly tent that is set up to serve as our high priest forever. And he's not only our high priest, he is the king who sits down enthroned before God forever. Psalm 61 is the story of Jesus's whole life. Let's consider a final aspect of this as we close. Because this psalm is not just about David. It's not just about Jesus. This psalm is the story of a Christian's whole life as well. You remember the story of the prodigal son? He demands his father's inheritance while his father is still living. What a slap in the face. I wish you were dead. Give me the money that I'm owed. His father is still living, and what does he do? He runs off into a far country at the end of the world and squanders everything. And he's reduced to literally feeding on the filth all around him because nobody will give him any food, and he has wasted all of his father's inheritance. Something in him pricks him up, and he knows he needs to get out of this situation. So what does he do? He says, you know, I know my father. I know what kind of man he is. I can go back to my father and say, bring me into your house. I'll be a servant. Just let me live in your house so that I can eat. But he actually doesn't know his father very well. When he comes back home, does he merely live in the father's house? No. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This my son was lost and is now found. The prodigal son goes from feeding on the slops to clothe like a king and ruling over the father's house. If you're a Christian, this is your story. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were, Ephesians says, we were made alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ 
and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Christians go from the very end of the world to reigning with Christ forever. If you are not a Christian, why not? I don't care if you've claimed to be a Christian for 60 years. Do you know this reality of being saved from your sin? Do you know what it is like to be feeding on the filth around you and then to be lifted up as a king and given an inheritance? Because that's what God does in the gospel. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of feeding on the filth all around you? There's all kinds of provisions in the Father's house. And Jesus Christ stands ready to welcome all who will come to him. Who would refuse this king? When we come to him by faith in the story of going from wallowing on our sin to reigning with Christ forever, it becomes your story. And when we come to him by faith, knowing this story to be ours, it gives us joy to follow verse 8. I didn't forget about it. What does it say in verse 8? So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. If you think of obedience right now in your life as some sort of a slavish thing, you've, you've missed out on the gospel because obedience to Jesus Christ is one of the most wonderful things in the world. We praise him forever and we delight to obey him because we've been freed from our sins. We've been taken from the end of the world to enthroned in his presence. What an indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, you've given, us all, you've given us all things that we need for life and godliness and that you've taken us from the end of the world and that you've given us an inheritance in the heavens that is ours and that even now, as we grow in sanctification and holiness before you, we also grow in joy before you. Thank you for sending your Son. And we pray that when we are those who are at the end of the world crying out to you, that by your spirit you would bring us back again, yet again, to the throne of grace, to know the great inheritance that is ours in him. And we bless you and thank you in Jesus' name.